Nikki Haley's the most talented politician in the country. Um, Democrats need to be uh, prepared and afraid of her running for uh, nationwide office. I think Nikki Haley's eyes have been running for president of the United States since she won re-election for governor in 2014. That was Bakari Sellers, who was voted into the South Carolina House of Representatives as the youngest ever African-American elected official in the United States. At the time, he sat next to then-fellow state representative Nikki Haley. Now, Haley, a Republican, is the former ambassador to the United Nations for the Trump administration, only having accepted the role after convincing Trump, the guy who wrote The Art of the Deal, to make it a cabinet-level position and add her to the National Security Council. Like Sellers said, it's talent. Talent means being able to not only understand policy with some depth and expertise, but being able to uh, communicate with uh, all, all layers of stakeholders from uh, the donor class to uh, the you know, small business storefront. So Nikki Haley can go and woo Boeing to come to South Carolina and in the next breath, she can be in a church uh, worshiping with, with the pastor. And then in the next step, she could be at a bakery talking about how she feels your pain and empathizes. Nikki Haley does a really, really good job of, of being what she needs to be at that moment. Few go into the Trump White House and leave with a strong career. But Nikki Haley did. So... How did Nimrata Randawa, a daughter of immigrant parents who grew up in rural South Carolina, become the possible future of the Republican Party? Who is Nikki Haley? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at the stories of those who have it. Last week, we told you a story about a young woman of color coming from a traditionally working class part of America, seeing something she wanted to change and running for office when she wasn't supposed to. This week, we're going to tell you another one. I didn't know you weren't supposed to run against somebody that had been there 30 years. I just knew that my mom always said, whatever you do, be great at it and never let people forget that you were there. That's Nikki Haley. Born Nimrata Randawa in 1972 in Bamberg, South Carolina. Population, 3,600. Her parents, Ajit and Raj Kaur Randawa, are Sikh and immigrated to North America in the 60s from Punjab, India. The family spent some time in Canada before moving to South Carolina. Bakari Sellers is also from Bamberg County. She grew up in Bamberg. I grew up in Denmark. Both are really, really poor cities, but very, very rich in community. Growing up, it was a poor county, but we didn't know that, if that makes sense. We refer to it as God's country. Um, it's just a, it's a place that we call home. Her father, Ajit, taught biology at Voorhees College, a historically black university in Denmark, South Carolina. Raj, Nikki's mother, earned a master's degree in education and taught in South Carolina public schools. They have four kids, Simran, Mithi, Sharan, and Nimrata, or Nikki. Where we grew up, rural America is actually very, very black. Um, Bamberg County is an overwhelmingly majority black, dish, black county and poor county and Democratic county, um, which is um, a lot in, in South Carolina. Eventually, Nikki's mother opened a high-end clothing store, Exotica. Exotica was a really weird 
uh, kind of high-end clothing store in the middle of a poor county. Um, so there weren't many people who shopped there um, who, or who could afford to shop there, but my mother shopped there quite, quite frequently and a few other, um, few other black women. And so they were very familiar with Nikki's parents and, and her mom and dad. There was a lot about the Rendawas that stuck out in that small southern town. You know, bottom line, we were the only Indian family in that small southern town. We weren't white enough to be white. We weren't black enough to be black. My father wore a turban. He still does to this day. My mother wore a sari. They didn't know who we were, what we were, or why we were there. And I remember um, when I would come home from school after being on the playground and being bullied, my mom would always say, your job is not to show them how you're different. Your job is to show them how you're similar. Haley tells this story about a beauty pageant she entered growing up, which she, quote, was disqualified from because they didn't know whether to put me in the white category or the black. I was neither, end quote. According to a 2010 story in the Orangeburg Times and Democrat, quote, longtime Bamberg residents said they had no personal recollection of the event, but indicated it might not be far-fetched given the time period. Here's Bakari Sellers. He spoke to us from his home due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I have a lot of friends in Banbury County who, when they heard that story, called me furious saying that never happened. I uh, was called by the local newspaper and I questioned the legitimacy of that story. It's a story Nikki tells all the time. It was in her first autobiography. She talks about it all the time. I believe it was the Little Miss Bamberg pageant or something like that she was in and how she was otherized by the citizens of Bamberg. They hate this story. Um, either they hate it, one, because it's not true, or they hate it, two, because it puts them in a bad light, which is also very possible. But everybody I talked to said, oh, it's not true. City council people, county council people, one of the former mayors was like, that's just not a true story. So I said it. And this was right after Nikki got elected. And so Nikki texts me to come downstairs, because the state house is upstairs. Her office was downstairs. I walked downstairs. And she meets me out front and we sit down outside of her office where everybody in the lobby can see you or walk by you. And we had this really close conversation. And she said, Bakari, your comments hurt me. And I was taken aback because some people, you can tell when some people are bullshitting and you can tell when people are really hurt. And Nikki was genuinely hurt that I questioned the legitimacy of what was a traumatic experience for her. Back at Exotica, Haley's job was bookkeeping, which sparked a seemingly lifelong passion for accounting. She majors in it at Clemson University. I had started doing the books for the family when I was 13. I didn't know any better until I got to Clemson um, that that wasn't normal. But, you know, a lot of <laughs> Her first job out of college is head of accounting for a waste management company, where she's the only executive who is a woman. I was an accounting supervisor for a um, company and six of their subsidiaries, and I was the only female executive at the time. And they had, you know, everybody had come into a morning meeting, and we were all in the boardroom, and the president was running late. And so we're chatting, and then all of a sudden the president comes in 10 minutes later, and the CFO at the time says, Nikki, why don't you get Paul a cup of coffee? And I remember thinking at that time, I didn't know what I was going to do, but how I handled that would dictate how they treated me going forward. And I said, absolutely, I would be happy to. And I leaned over to the phone 
and I called my assistant and I said, Pam, would you please get Paul a cup of coffee? You delegated. Becky. They never, they never asked me to do that again. So, you know, the lesson is that you can make your point without, you know, really creating a large fuss about it. In 1996, Nikki Randawa marries Michael Haley. The couple celebrate in two ceremonies, one Sikh and one Methodist. It wouldn't take too long for Haley, a young businesswoman, to get involved in politics. And the one thing I noticed in our family business was how hard it was to make a dollar and how easy it was for government to take it. So my mom always said, well, don't complain about it. Do something about it. She starts to get involved in local government, chambers of commerce, small business advocate groups, the local Republican Party, and considers running for office. Her South Carolina state representative, District 87, was Larry Kuhn, who had held the seat since 1975, when Haley was three years old. Kuhn was the longest-serving legislator in the South Carolina government. Just like AOC's Joseph Crowley, Kuhn is a powerful, embedded bit of the government and the party. But Haley was driven, and she said she wanted to change things. The actual final push to run came from an unlikely source. Someone that the people Haley would one day surround herself with say should be in prison. As I thought about doing it, everybody told me why I shouldn't. You can't do it. You're too young. You've got small children. You should start at the school board level. There was all these reasons why I shouldn't. And I went to Furman University to listen to a speaker series, and Hillary Clinton was there. And she said, for all the reasons that people tell you you shouldn't do it, those are all the reasons that you should. She gets out, campaigning, knocking on doors, sharing Krispy Kreme donuts with voters, and talking about politics. Local South Carolina press at the time reported that Haley was victim of some pretty vicious racism during the primary race. The district, unlike Bamberg, where Haley grew up, is over 90% white. Quote, A man who was driving away rolled down his window to shout at her, I hope your children worship cows. It was meant as a slur on Hinduism. Nikki Haley, by the way, is not a Hindu. At another point during the House District 87 runoff against incumbent Rep. Larry Kuhn, Haley campaign manager B.J. Bowling received the following email. Please remember that she is a Buddhist. One of my friends verified this for me. I can only vote for a Christian. End quote. Haley was born a Sikh, a religion that is not Buddhism, nor Islam, nor Hinduism. Sikhism is monotheistic and is based on the teachings of a 16th century guru. There are about 25 million Sikhs in the world today. Haley converted to Christianity when she was 24, long before she would run for office. In the primary race, Haley forces a runoff. Just over 5,000 people voted, and Haley won by 503 votes. In the general election, she's unopposed. Really, folks, you can just walk into the role that will catapult you to being the future of your party. Haley becomes the first Indian American to sit in the South Carolina legislature. Bakari Sellers, a Democrat, and for a time the youngest ever African-American legislator in the country, joined the House a term later. Bakari Sellers compared Nikki Haley's politics to that of South Carolina governor Mark Sanford. Remember him? He literally disappeared for a while while he was governor, claimed he was hiking the Appalachian Trail, but then it turned out he went to South America with his mistress. Mark Sanford was to the right of center, the right of that and further right. And that's where Nikki found herself. And then she did something that changed the structure and the foundation of 
the South Carolina General Assembly. One of the things I noticed was legislators never voted on the record. But it all came to a head when there was a bill that would give legislators pay raises. All in favor say aye. Everybody said aye. All opposed, silence. The ayes had it. But to this day, you could not find one legislator that said they voted themselves a pay raise. And I got really upset because I went to my Republicans and I said, what are we doing? This is exactly why people don't trust us is because we're not showing them exactly what we did. So the next day I filed a bill that said anything important enough to be debated on the floor of the House or the Senate is important enough for you to know how your legislators voted. And my leadership said, put the bill away. We don't need to have it. We will decide what the public needs to see and what they don't. Now think about that. So I went home that night and I talked to my husband and I said, if I can't even get legislators to vote on the record, what am I doing here? I can't, I'm not gonna even get anything done. And he said, then fight. So I went across the state and talked to as many groups as I could and said, did you know of all the bills passed in the House, only 8% were voted on the record. Did you know of all the bills passed in the Senate, only 1% was voted on the record. So I told everybody, if you didn't know how your House member voted 92% of the time, you didn't know how your Senator voted 99% of the time, how do you know who to vote for when you go to the polls? She was a backbench lawmaker from Lexington County. You know, um, did, you know, did people in Greenville know her? Did people in Myrtle Beach know her or Charleston? No. But, you know, they eventually did. Uh, and uh, that's sort of what, what was her defining moment in the uh, in the state house. That's Andy Shane, the Columbia Bureau Chief for the Post and Courier. He's covered South Carolina state politics for years. So we have Haley in the South Carolina State House, bucking party authority, ostensibly fighting for transparency in government. But other than that, in six years in the House, she didn't have many big moments, and she's still a pretty much unknown representative. 2010 approaches, an election year. Governor Mark Sanford is about to hit his term limit. When she decided she was going to run for governor, I'll never forget uh, Gilda Cobb Hunter. We all have computers on our desk. Gilda, Representative Gilda Cobb Hunter said, have y'all seen this? I'm like, what? She goes and she pulls up the screen and it's Nikki Haley in the lobby of the state house with a blue dress on announces she's running for governor. Everybody laughed. Nobody knew it was going to happen. And everybody laughed. The closest thing to power that she had at that point was Mark Sanford. Um, she had aligned herself with Sanford, who was a huge fiscal conservative. So she enters the race. Um, she's not really a, 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 a very popular candidate, not a, was polling very poorly. But do you hear that? In the distance, coming from up north, way up north, I think it's saying, you betcha? And then I got to drop by the NRA annual meeting in North Carolina, where I was amongst a whole lot of friends who were proudly clinging to their guns and religion. It was fine. So I figured, yeah, let me swing by and give a shout out to a strong pro-family, pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, pro-development, conservative reformer, your next governor, Nikki Haley. All of a sudden, Sarah Palin came in and endorsed Nikki Haley. And it was the weirdest combination of people I'd ever seen. She went from fourth to first in the polls almost overnight. 
and she never looked back. It wasn't just Palin. Oddly, the thing that helped her is was the was the allegation of the affairs and, and the Palin endorsement, which kind of came bam bam right on top of each other. Uh, there was a blogger who said that he had had a romantic affair with her uh, at one point when she was in office, and that kind of blew up. And the affair was sort of a double-edged sword for her. I mean, as much as you could sit here and say that it was meant to um, humiliate her and meant to sort of say, you know, obviously call her morals into question. Um, but other, but on, on the other hand, I think it, in a way it ended up helping her because uh, it built a lot of sympathy for her. Uh, there were a lot of people who felt that she was being, um, you know, shamed uh, and, uh, and, be, and being called out uh, for being a woman and being a woman politician and, you know, and people thinking, oh, well, obviously she must have slept with somebody, you know, and she says that wasn't true. And uh, for every person who probably believed her, there were two that felt she was, you know, this was my mother, my sister, my daughter. And they, there she grew up. She had a lot of sympathy, and um, and uh, she 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 fought back really hard. And then I think people started paying attention to her politics and seeing what she was talking about. That Tea Party line, and the Tea Party line is very strong in South Carolina. Um, and off she went. You know, the other thing not to be undersold about Nikki Haley is that she is a very good politician, a very good retail politician. Remember what Sellers and Haley herself said earlier: "It's all about convincing people you're just like them." Haley did it with her politics, her religion, her name. She won the primary and then the general with 51% of the vote. She was the first woman to serve as South Carolina's governor. Haley, along with Louisiana's Bobby Jindal, became one of the first nationally prominent Indian American politicians. We'll look a bit into Haley's term in South Carolina's executive branch. But first, are you in the mood to buy something? Thank you. Do you know tomorrow morning there's going to be a lot of news and a lot of observers that say that we made history. And in some ways you can look at me and say, yes, we did. But what I want this to be is that we're turning a page. We're turning a page on where we've been, but the history is going to be on where we go. That's Nikki Haley on election night. She was able to leverage a state representative seat into a governorship. Let's talk about how she leveraged a governorship into even more. Here's Andy Shane again. This is the jobs governor. This is a woman who gave her cell phone number willingly to CEOs and, and company um, officials who went and visited places. Uh, Walmart asked her to be a speaker uh, a few times uh, at its events. It was all about jobs. A tax break here, a regulatory favor there, sprinkle in a little anti-union legislation. It's worth it to bring jobs to the state, right? Um, you know, again, we're, we're, we're building plants in, in rural areas that don't normally get a lot of business. Um, are you just putting people into low-wage jobs in rural areas, or are you um, bringing economic development to an area that otherwise hadn't seen it since the, uh, you know, the cotton mill days. A lot of the jobs didn't pay, uh, you know, a lot of the reasons why we got a lot of these jobs, I mean, we'll just pick on Boeing for a moment, is that, of course, you know, the, the, the plants that Boeing has in Puget Sound are all union. We are one of the least unionized states in the country. Here's Bakari Sellers. Uh, people will tell you that South Carolina is open for business, but South Carolina's businesses revolve around corporate welfare. They don't revolve around lifting up small businesses and encouraging young entrepreneurship. 
Uh, we haven't invested in higher education. And so there's been a vacuum where people who can qualify and who can contribute leave and don't come back. We have one of the worst education systems in the country. And if, uh, you know, if we want to continue to win these economic battles, we're going to have to improve our education system. And they're finally, uh, uh, in the past two, three years, putting more money into the education system that has long been um, underfunded. We have some corporations such as Boeing, uh, uh, Amazon, Honda, BMW, which are still there and still create a lot of jobs. But when you get beyond a rock's throw from those places, people are still suffering, struggling to make ends meet, struggling to educate their kids and pay for prescription drugs. And um, South Carolina, we, we have a saying um, that's thank God for Mississippi, um, because that's usually the only state that is behind us and everything that's good. Another thing governors do is sign bills into law. I told you about how Haley fought against her party and for transparency when she was in the legislature, but as governor, some of her actions veered towards the most democracy-destroying practices of her party. In 2011, the Republican-majority South Carolina legislature passed new voter ID legislation. Governor Haley signed the bill into law. But there was one hurdle the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which stipulated that certain states with a history of making it very difficult, basically impossible for people of color to vote, had to clear any new voting laws or regulations they were making with the Justice Department. South Carolina is one of those states. And in 2011, for the first time since 1994, the Justice Department used the power given to it by that Voting Rights Act and shot down the South Carolina voter ID law. It said that the new law would have affected people of color 20% worse than white people. It was voter suppression. Governor Haley called the block bullying and outrageous, but after a little legal battle, the voter ID legislation was made into law in South Carolina in 2013. It's hard not to see things like voter ID as being a legacy of the Confederacy. Although the laws are neutrally worded, they impact certain groups of people more than others. Another thing that's easy to see as being a legacy of the Confederacy? The Confederate flag. And Haley's governorship is largely defined by that flag and a tragedy in Charleston. Let's roll back a bit. 150 years ago, a bunch of Americans rose up in a traitorous revolution, furious that the federal government wouldn't let them continue enslaving human beings. The country went to war. The traitors lost, trounced by the federal government. These traitorous, racist, human-trafficking losers had a symbol, the Confederate flag. Today, the flag symbolizes an allegiance to those traitorous losers who enslaved human beings. And South Carolina, along with a few other southern states, flew it proudly until a few years ago. The flag flew atop the dome since um, the early 60s. It was, it was, it was actually put, put on top of the dome um, uh, to commemorate this, uh, the, uh, the, the, the hundred year anniversary of the civil war, the beginning of the civil war. But also, of course, that was seemed to be just to happen to coincide during the push to de desegregate schools. Um, and so this the flag, it was the American flag, the South Carolina flag and the Confederate battle flag atop the dome since the early sixties. Haley was asked about the issue in a 2014 gubernatorial debate and tied it back to our big thing being pro CEO. 
Thank you. You know, the Confederate flag is a very sensitive issue. And what I can tell you is over the last three and a half years, I spend a lot of my days on the phones with CEOs and recruiting jobs to this state. I can honestly say I have not had one conversation with a single CEO about the Confederate flag. But symbols mean things. The Confederate flag is a symbol of hate. We've got some breaking news from downtown Charleston, South Carolina, where there are reports that at least eight people are dead. After a uh, Dylan Roof uh, attends a church service at, uh, at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. He has decided that he wants to kill black people. He hates them. He picks one of the oldest churches in Charleston, attends a prayer service uh, with a number of others, and opens fire at the end of it. They welcome him in. And he, uh, he kills nine of uh, nine uh, um, uh, people at the church. He kills the pastor, who's a state senator, as well as uh, eight of his parishioners. Preacher by 13, pastor by 18, public servant by 23. What a life Clement Pigney lived. And then to lose him at 41. Slain in his sanctuary with eight wonderful members of his flock. Cynthia Hurd, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lance, DePayne Middleton Doctor, Tawanza Sanders, Daniel L. Simmons, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Myra Thompson. Good people, decent people, God-fearing people. Nikki went to all nine of those funerals, all nine of them, uh, which is a lot. And I saw the utter exhaustion on her face. I saw the emotional draining. But if it wasn't for people like Joe Riley, who was the mayor of Charleston, if it wasn't for people like Chief Mullen, who was the chief of police in Charleston, if Nikki Haley wasn't governor, um, I don't know if our state would have held it together. This was just months after the killing of Walter Scott. A few months earlier, we had had a, 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 an African-American man shot an unarmed African-American man shot by a, a North Charleston police officer. Um, so under that backdrop, um, uh, and this was also at the time of Ferguson and all the rest in Baltimore, um, Nikki Haley quickly sort of saw this as, an, as a chance to take the flag down. She had apparently been bothered by it. She had seen that Dylan Roof had used it as a prop, as part of his manifesto, and so she had, even though she had just said in October during a debate, the previous October, that she had not heard any complaints about the flag and didn't have any reason to push it down, she now had a reason and she, she, she took advantage of that. Today, we are here in a moment of unity in our state without ill will to say it's time to move the flag from the Capitol grounds. Haley couldn't just remove the flag, she needed the legislature. In 2019, she wrote about that battle in the Washington Post, how she convinced her fellow Republicans to remove the flag. Quote, 
I told them about the discrimination my family faced when I was a young girl growing up in rural South Carolina. My father, as an immigrant from India who wears a turban, was not always welcomed in shops and community events. It was painful. I made the case that no child should feel unwelcomed at our state capitol because the Confederate battle flag was flying there. She ties it to this theme of showing how you're similar to people rather than sowing division. Quote, Today's outrage culture would instead have made the case that everyone who respects the Confederate flag is an evil racist. Not only is that untrue, but more to the point, if I had tried to make that argument, the flag would never have come down. The vote wasn't unanimous. Democrats get uneasy with me when I do give her credit for actually taking it down eventually. But Nikki Haley's not responsible for the flag taken down because nine people had to die for it to come down. But without Nikki Haley being governor, I'm not sure that it would have been followed through. The tragic shooting at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church is the main event of Nikki Haley's time as governor of South Carolina. There's other scandals sprinkled here and there. Her attorney general resigns from misusing campaign funds. Poor cybersecurity allowed for a major data breach of citizen data. Children under the oversight of the South Carolina Department of Social Services were abused and, in a few cases, died. I don't have time to get into these stories here, but they're important. As governor, Haley was responsible for this kind of stuff. Today, it's just run-of-the-mill political scandal. The stuff that barely anyone cares about in the Trump era. So let's get to Trump. When I ran for governor the first time and won the primary, this envelope showed up and it had this great gold trim on it. And inside was a support check and there was a note that said, you're a winner. That's Haley talking about a letter and campaign donation she got from then only a reality star, Donald Trump. Fast forward to the 2016 Republican primary. A lot of talent on that stage. 16 people were there. And I did. I endorsed a different candidate. I endorsed Marco Rubio, in which the president then tweeted, Nikki Haley is an embarrassment to South Carolina. <laughs> and I responded in a tweet that said, bless your heart. So uh... That's grace and grit right there. Hashtag grace and grit. To people who, like me, don't speak Southern, that isn't as nice as it sounds. Let's look at the 2016 election. Um, she was very anti-Trump at first. Um, you know, she did not like the rhetoric, uh, the re especially the anti-immigration rhetoric. Again, daughter of Indian immigrants. And um, while, again, she, she was for protecting borders and all the rest of it, she was not for the, uh, the hateful language that uh, the president was using at the time. I want to roll back to some advice Haley's mother gave her. My mom would always say, your job is not to show them how you're different. Your job is to show them how you're similar. And here's how that applied in 2016. So then the president ended up winning the primary. I ended up supporting him in the general. And then Reince Priebus, his chief of staff, called and said, Nikki, you know, the president wants to see you. And I said, for what? And he said, he wants to talk to you about secretary of state. And I said, Reince, I can't be secretary of state. I'm a governor. And he said, well, he wants to see you. I need you to... Um, come meet with him tomorrow. So I went to meet with the president. I walk in the door and the first thing he says is, well, I guess your guy didn't win. <laughs> and so then I went and I said, look, I'm not your person. I, you know, we've got a lot going on in the world. And I think that, you know, you need someone that doesn't need a learning curve, but I'm here to help you and I will support in any way that I can. So I leave, go back to the 
the job I loved um, serving the state that raised me. Fast forward to the end of the week, Reince calls again, and he said, okay, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. I said, Reince, I don't even know what the United Nations does. I just know everybody hates it. <laughs> and he said, well, the president's going to call you on Monday. You need to be ready. President called on Monday, and he said, all right, Nikki, are you going to do this? And I said, well, I said, I've been a governor. I don't want to work for anyone else. I would want to work directly with you. So it needs to be a cabinet position. He said, done. And I said, well, I'm a policy girl, and I'd want to be in the room when decisions were made, so I would need to be on the National Security Council. He said, done. And I said, well, I'm not going to be a wallflower or a talking head. I need to be able to say what I think. And that's when he said, that's exactly why I want you to do this. And he was true to his word from the first day till the very last day. In just a year, Haley negotiated herself from an embarrassment to South Carolina to a cabinet position, the National Security Council, representing America on a world stage at the United Nations. I spoke with Eleanor Openshaw. I'm the director of the New York office of an, a human rights organization called the International Service for Human Rights. Um, our, our work focuses on two main things. One, the protection of human rights advocates and defenders. So people around the globe who very frequently face threats and attacks as they try to hold states to account. So that's one of our objectives, seeking ways to better protect people doing that work. And the second is to fight for a more effective international human rights system. So with that in mind, we do a lot of work at the United Nations. Let's do the super basics first. The United Nations emerged after the Second World War with um, the ambition of stopping war. So these bodies, the Security Council, the General Assembly, the Human Rights Council situated in uh, Switzerland and Geneva, these all operate in different ways, bringing states together in dialogue and in negotiation to produce a series of agreements. So the Human Rights Council discusses a wide agenda of issues from how to counter torture, stop torture, how to respect the rights of women, how to stop arbitrary detention, how to ensure uh, individuals can access clean water and sanitation, and on and on. Um, and its job is to uh, produce resolutions and decisions which uh, can be then translated into national level policy to ensure that human rights are respected nationally. And when we say human rights, we're talking about um, a whole range of freedoms that we as human beings have uh, a need for so that we can thrive and so we can fulfill our potential. The United States is on the Human Rights Council. We supposedly provide moral leadership to the world and exemplify democratic governance, right? Enter Nikki Haley. It has been a bully pulpit for human rights violators. And the Human Rights Council has been not a place of conscience, but a place of politics. It has focused its attention unfairly and relentlessly on Israel. Meanwhile, it has ignored the misery inflicted by regimes in Venezuela, Cuba, Zimbabwe, and China. 
That was Haley announcing that the United States would withdraw from the UN Human Rights Council in June 2018. That's just one day after UN Human Rights Chief Zayed Riyad al-Hussein delivered a speech to the Human Rights Council where he denounced the Trump administration's child separation policy, saying he was, quote, deeply concerned about the unconscionable abuse at the U.S.-Mexico border. The United States has been a key player in the United Nations project, and of course one of the first kind of instigators of the initiative in 1945. Um, it's taken important positions on a range of issues over the years, and it's seen as a very key player uh, on questions including human rights initiatives. And so for a country like the United States to step away from the Human Rights Council, not from other UN bodies in general, but from the Human Rights Council, was seen as a, a somewhat reckless and slightly impetuous. It is really important that the U.S. leads on human rights, and its departure from the Human Rights Council was a step in the opposite direction. At the end of 2018, Haley resigns as ambassador. It's kind of a surprise, but her resignation isn't marked by any specific reason or scandal unusual in the Trump administration. Her UN replacement is Kelly Kraft, the former ambassador to Canada and a major Republican donor. So where does Haley go from here? Let's roll back to her governorship. She gave Boeing $120 million in tax incentives to open a plant in South Carolina. She helped Boeing win um, uh, incentives for an expansion. And then after she left office and left the United Nations, she's on the Boeing board. The board of directors for Boeing, one of the largest aerospace and defense contractors in the world. In 2020, she resigned for a seemingly principled reason. Boeing was set to get a huge bailout from the government as part of the coronavirus stimulus package. Haley didn't see that as fair. It actually didn't happen, though. Boeing ended up issuing bonds. But anyway, today, like millions of other Americans in this pandemic, Haley is unemployed. But after sitting on the Boeing board, probably doesn't need a stimulus check. Now she's got a couple years to prepare for something else. I think Nikki Haley's eyes have been running for president of the United States since she won re-election for governor in 2014. Nikki Haley is a sharp politician who understands how to leverage an opportunity when she sees one. In the UN, the one thing she was missing from her resume as a White House candidate was, an, uh, was um, foreign relations. Well, box checked. Haley uses showing people she's like them as a way to succeed in politics. And she's showing she's a lot like Trump. She became friends with Ivanka Trump and her husband, Jared Kushner. I can't say enough good things about Jared and Ivanka. Jared is such a hidden genius that no one understands. A hidden genius no one understands. But it worked. Ivanka even endorsed Haley's daughter in a student government election at Clemson, Haley's alma mater. Can you imagine you're running for student government and your opponent randomly gets endorsed by the president's daughter? Remember, most polls show that more than 90% of the Republican Party supports President Trump. Being like Trump could mean a primary win. For the most part, the things she was caught up in in South Carolina are, you know, again, by 2024, are going to kind of seem small to people compared to, I think, what's happened in the past four years. I think the way people should look at her is to say, 
that she's a little bit, she's a politician and a little bit of an opportunist. And she puts her finger up and sees where the winds are blowing and goes that way. But some say Haley could see the White House even sooner than that. Here's Trump when she resigned. Hopefully you'll be coming back at some point, but <laughs> you want to just, uh, in maybe a different capacity. You can have your pick. Haley can have her pick. Here's Andy Shane. As little as 17 years ago, back to 2003, you know, this is a woman who, you know, was sort of involved with business groups in Lexington County who worked for her parents' dress shop, uh, who decided to run for state house. I mean, in 17 years, she's gone from, from that to, you know, basically being an internationally known politician. And it's just, it just shows you how quickly things can change for folks. And especially if you have good timing and, uh, and uh, that charisma. That's what makes Nikki Haley's story so dope. And it's something I'm going to teach my daughters as I grow up. She's going to be a figure that I teach along with Hillary Clinton, um, you know, along with Susan Rice, um, some Samantha Powers, um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Because Nikki Haley is an American Indian from Bamberg County who became governor and United States um, ambassador to the UN. And she beat all the boys. Nikki Haley is pitched as the future of the Republican Party. Something different, and just as importantly, somebody different. A relatable, business-minded conservative who ran for office because she saw how hard it was for her parents to make ends meet at the family business. A woman who took on the boys and won. Haley is very popular and seen as an independent voice of reason. But don't be fooled. Nikki Haley is a Republican in line with the far right of her party. From her America First attitude at the United Nations to her trenchant support of voter ID laws, to turning to CEOs to decide whether or not the Confederate flag should fly at the South Carolina State House. Bakari Sellers said it at the beginning of the episode. Democrats should be scared of Haley. But looking at her career, should the whole country be scared? On the next episode of Who Is, we turn to the Democrats and the Democrat in charge of the Senate, Minority Leader Charles Schumer, next week, featuring a conversation with former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid on Who Is. Uh, can you just reflect a little bit on, on, on that difference? I don't understand your question. We'll see how it goes. A sincere thank you to our guests. Eleanor Openshaw, co-director of the New York Office of the International Service for Human Rights, leading ISHR's work to promote NGO participation and protect civil society space at the United Nations. Bakari Sellers, a CNN political analyst and former state representative in South Carolina. His first book, My Vanishing Country, was released in May of this year. And Andy Shane, Columbia Bureau Chief of Charleston's Post and Courier. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Mara, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Kinsey Clark is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hong, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. At Now This, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Jared Lodeholt. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, Elias Acevedo, and PJ Evans for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Who Is, the podcast, season two, new episodes out every Tuesday. 
If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe and hey, maybe tell some of your friends.